Hello everyone, welcome to the LSE. I'm Ulf Axelsson and uh, I'm the Arbrash Group uh, Chair of Finance and Private Equity here and I'm also the Director of our Teaching and Research Initiative in Private Equity. And apart from research and teaching, we try to endeavor to make LSE kind of a natural gathering point to have an open and honest debate about private equity's role in the overall economy and this event is very much part of that uh, part of that debate and the topic that we're going to try to cover today is what role private equity has in emerging markets and there's like a subtitle saying doing well by doing good question mark i don't know if we'll have get any real answer to this question but that's that's actually the topic we're going to have a keynote speech by one of the icons and pioneers in <laughs> I'll just do it like this. The in mic, emerging markets. The mic doesn't agree with you. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, in emerging markets, private equity, which is Arif Nakfi. I'll introduce him in, in a bit more length um, in a few minutes. And then we'll have a panel discussion led by Professor Felder Hardiman about this topic. And then we'll open up for some questions. And the idea is that we should be done hopefully well before eight, unless the debate gets extremely heated or people get extremely verbose. But that's the plan, at least. Um, so before I introduce Arif, let me just say why uh, I thought it would be a good idea to have an event on this topic. So I've been teaching the private equity program, which is the only private equity program in the world here now for three years. And one of the great things are the great students that, that I have in this program. Uh, many of these students, they are all top students, many of them come, they all come from all over the world and many of them come from what we bunch together is calling emerging markets. So we have students from China, India, the rest of Asia, the Middle East, uh, South America and these students are just like all our other students, their, their goal is to get an interesting and really, really, really well-paying job when they graduate. But many of them also kind of want to see if they combine that with going back to their countries and doing something to help uh, development in the countries. And the hope is that potentially private equity in emerging markets can combine the roles of doing hard-nosed profit-maximizing capitalism with actually developing societies in, uh, in a good way. Now, I've been studying private equity for a while now as an, as an academic and we do know quite a lot about um, developed market private equity where this has been kind of going on for about three decades now and even though there has been bad press in particular in terms of the leveraged buyouts and um, the academics that have tried to do rigorous work on looking at the impact of companies that private equity and venture capital has, I think broadly have come to the conclusion that private equity actually is quite a good alternative to the more traditional ways of doing capitalism. And maybe when I talk about the traditional ways, it gets the stereotype is on the one end we have the family firm uh, where you have the guy who basically owns the company, runs the company, and this is how much of business is done in the world. It's great in terms of aligning in, uh, the alignment of interest because you really put your money where your mouth is. 
is not so great for risk sharing and it's maybe not so great for say allocating talent to resources because as it happens the son of these great founders who takes over the company happens to be not so great always so so there are problems with that model and then we have this other model which is the the publicly held company with dispersed shareholders which is a great model in terms of risk sharing um, but not such a great model necessarily for aligning interests because the CEO doesn't really own the company and what he does is not necessarily maximizing the value of the company and the small shareholders um, don't have enough money invested to really take their role seriously as, as actually checking what the manager is doing. So here's where we think maybe private equity can be a good alternative to have people who are expert active investors and take majority stakes in firms uh, imposes good governance on them and monitors them and imposes good management practice on them and it seems it seems to work it seems to have worked in the developed markets firms run by private equity funds in general seem to be more efficient than other firms and it doesn't seem to be at the expense of you know labor or long-term investments so I think the evidence is is pretty favorable now we don't really know at all whether this model works in emerging markets maybe Arif will tell you differently, but as, a, as an academic where you need many years of data and you need statistical significance, it's still a very, very young uh, topic. The hope is that this model will be extra good in emerging markets because that's where you really need you know, active ownership, good governance and monitoring because there are not that many great substitutes for that often in these economies. But we're not, uh, we're not sure yet whether it works. That's the hope. And many investors have this hope. So there's a lot of money going into this asset class. I think it was more than $40 billion last year invested into emerging markets private equity funds. We still don't know whether the returns to those investments will be high relative to the risks that you take. It's the hope that you can have high returns and still do good social investments and so we'll see how that play out, plays out in the future. Uh, and that's part of the stuff that I hope Arif is going to talk about. Um, so let me just introduce Arif a little bit more. So Arif is really a pioneer and an icon in emerging markets private equity. He's the CEO and founder of Abraj Capital, which has grown to become actually the biggest standalone emerging markets private equity fund, which has now uh, something like $10 billion dollars under management and offices in Latin America and the Middle East, Asia and Africa. Um, and basically Arif has built this up from, from scratch. Um, and Arif has also taken a keen interest in, in social development. It's just a few days ago that he got this prize, the Oslo Prize for Business and Peace. Maybe I didn't get that quite right. It's basically the equivalent of, shall I call it the Nobel Prize for Business Leaders? Am I making you blush now? No. <laughs> so, which is given to business leaders for promoting kind of peace by aligning the interests of business and, and society. And he's also been awarded one of the highest uh, civilian honors in his homeland of Pakistan. I'm not going to pronounce it in Urdu, but I think it <laughs> translates into the, the star of excellence. Uh, and maybe not last but not least, uh, Arif, has a very long-standing relationship with the London School of Economics where he uh, took a bachelor's degree in economics, I think, 
with honors, I think, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and has been a, and a great contributor to the school after that. So he has, on his initiative and with his money, uh, that was how we could start the, the Middle East Center at, at the London School of Economics, where he now also sits uh, in the government, governing body. And uh, through his generous donation, uh, we could also start this private equity research and teaching initiative in the finance department that I'm uh, part of. Um, so it also has a long-standing family tradition with the LSE because I think your wife and your son and your nephew have and degrees a few others. from the, a <laughs> yes. few others. Yes. And if you want any other like family members or pets or plants <laughs> to get a degree here, if they obviously if they fulfill the, the criteria, I'm willing to take them into my, my program. Um, so it's with great honor that, that um, I'm going to let Arif now tell you how you can actually make money by investing in a, an electric power plant in Karachi that's falling apart and customers are not paying and employees are not working and the government is not living up to their contractual obligations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ulf. Um, I'll start off by saying that a room this full tells me that I agree with Ulf. There are a lot of people looking for jobs in private equity. And uh, I'll disagree with him on another thing, which is, I don't know what all these things are, but I'm trying to get rid of them. Um, I'll disagree with him by saying that he kept referring to the world I live in as emerging markets. And if I'm going to talk to you for the next 20 minutes, half an hour, we all have to agree on one thing, which is that we're going to call them, when you leave this room, global growth markets. Because emerging markets is a term of the past. Global growth markets is how we best define the South-South dialogue and emerging economies that are uh, today the engine of global growth. And to call them emerging markets is to do them a disservice. Yes, the PE industry in these markets is new, it's nascent, but then the PE industry worldwide is new and nascent. And the academics in the room will get upset when I say that PE 101 has not yet been written, uh, simply because every firm is defining its role and its place in private equity, whether they're the large firms um, in the West or whether they're the firms in the markets that I live in. Um, they're defining it in their own way. And PE has gone through iterations. We, I think we're now living through an iteration that is called PE 3.0. And the reason for that is because we've gone through the cycle of PE being an engine for growth by taking financial leverage, adding that on, running a business for a few years, paying off the leverage, and expanding the multiple. We then went into a phase where the large asset aggregators came in and just built businesses on the back of the momentum of the management fee and then went public. And now we're in the phase, I think, where PE has spent so much time defending itself and especially in the last US presidential election where one of the um, people that was standing for election was an XPE uh, person, uh, the industry got a lot of flack. So all of a sudden you started seeing Western PE firms talk so much more about sustainability and give back and value add. But of course we've been doing that for the last 10 years. And we've been doing that because we came to a very simple conclusion right up front on day one that sustainable investing is good investing and good investing is profitable investing. And so, apart from a, my time at the LSE, 
I have lived in growth markets all my life. I was born in growth markets. I did my business in growth markets. And today, I am running a PE firm in growth markets. So, um, you know, I'm very pleased to be talking to you about these markets now. Um, I have to say that coming back and talking at the LSE is always a pleasure for me because I was telling the MSc students upstairs when uh, I was a student here, I was in the senior common room, and because I was a heavy smoker, I couldn't resist lighting up uh, as a student in the corner of the, of the senior common room, and I got suspended for that from the director. So 25 years later, um, having been suspended earlier, I then... Uh, um, I was in the process of giving some money to the school and I asked the person I was having dinner with, I said, do you mind if I smoke? And she said, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> times change when you're a student or when you're a donor. Um, why am I such an evangelist around growth markets? I can summarize it in a very simple sentence, which is growth markets are going to define the economic landscape of the 20th century, 21st century, full stop. That's what it's all about, and that's what's going to happen. Now, this is becoming an increasingly obvious statement as well. But this was not always the case. Anyone involved in international politics, in trade, or investing today can tell you that there is a buzz around Africa. Everybody feels it. Everyone can see it. Uh, more and more people are beginning to understand that in Africa, there is a great amount of capital that is going to be deployed and to be deployed very profitably. Most people still continue to think of Africa as a resource story. But you know, Africa is not just a resource story. Africa today is a consumer product story. It's a consumer growth story. There are going to be 350 million Africans that are going to be entering the middle classes in the next few years. And these people are going to want more of everything. They're going to want more of consumer products. They've all grown up in the MTV generation. They're young people. And their demand is going to drive the supply of products into these markets and then in turn affluence and growth. Now, last year, The Economist ran a cover that said Africa rising. But a decade ago, it ran a cover that called it the hopeless continent. And we've been investing in Africa for decades, so we know that it really wasn't a hopeless continent. When you're making three and four times the return on your capital, then clearly there is an opportunity that not enough people are seeing. When I first started investing in the Middle East, um, people were treating the Middle East pretty much like a vacuum cleaner. The big PE firms would come in, collect capital, and deploy it in the West. I felt that there was a tremendous opportunity to invest in those markets because there were a lot of low-hanging fruit. And in the course of doing that, when you produce um, returns that result in giving back three times capital or uh, IRRs in the 60s and 70s, then you realize that that opportunity is really very large. And then in the course of growth came 2008. And the whole world suffered what I call a heart attack, a cataclysmic shock. And we're still not out of it. I think uh, what we did at the time is we swept a lot of the issues under the carpet and hoped that they'd go away. And some did and some didn't. But the net reality is that the banks which were really the cause of the crisis. If you think about how risk is evaluated, there's always a premium that has been attached to investing in the so-called emerging markets and the global growth markets. But when risk came, it came from the heart of Wall Street. It came from the same banking community that acted quite irresponsibly and, in my opinion, was not punished enough um, in terms of um, really fixing the rules and fixing the systems, especially around incentives and compensation, 
So we're back to the same game. But the PE industry, I think, has learned its lesson and is beginning to reform its way of thinking and understanding. And um, it's, it's quite interesting, the journey that we're going down right now. It's also a bit of an irony because the more information we have, the faster we get it, the more choices we have as a result, and the more we seem to be making rapid but short-sighted decisions, and more of them. And PE as an industry is not about short-sighted decisions. PE as an industry is about long-term thinking, and uh, you get money, you get it for 10 years, and you invest it wisely, and you give that money back with the return that it deserves. Now, um, when you think about who are the investors in PE, by far and away the largest investors in PE are either uh, pension funds, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds, and development finance institutions. And they understand the nature of the industry and the fact that long-term returns in the PE industry have outperformed the benchmark of public markets. And it is therefore attracting more and more capital to this category called alternative investments. But I actually happen to think that it's an equity investment. And over time, there will be an asset class that will emerge that will be called equity. And it will have a private component and it will have a public component. And that is how this industry is going to grow even more exponentially in the years to come. The model will change, no doubt about that in my mind. But the amount of capital that, we, that will be available to this asset class will be dramatically greater than it is today. Because with patience, with resilience, with the fact that there is so much more that can be done around governance in corporate life across the world, that we're going to find more and more capital being attracted to it. And the other part of it is that pension funds, by and large, are facing large unfunded liabilities 10, 15, 20 years from now. And no longer are they concerned about beating the benchmark um, of public markets. They're concerned about creating value through getting absolute returns. And absolute returns is where the median in the private equity industry is doing better than, than the average in public markets. Now this is, I'm not going to belabor this point because it's crucial to a firm like mine, which operates in this fairly illiquid asset class. And you know, you have to spend years helping companies that you invest in rise above the chatter, uh, accumulate value, and then go on to and exit going on to other investors in turn. So it's because of that that I'm also a little bit uh, circumspect around the headlines that one reads about in, uh, around growth markets. And right now there's this massive debate that I'm sure all of you are familiar with about the slowdowns that are being experienced in China and in India. But I find that again quite hysterical. It's a valid question, but then double-digit growth for a consistently long period of time is in the realm of impossibility. And these countries have been sustainably operating it, but you know, as an economy grows in scale, it limits its ability to grow at double digit all the time. And it results in a fairly skewed version of what output we should be measuring. Because when you compare that double digit return or close to double digit return with what is happening in developed markets, then you inevitably um, you know, you look at markets that are doing extremely well, but you can see the dichotomy between them. Is, it's like comparing a Ferrari with a Porsche. Are you ridiculously fast or are you pleasantly fast? And at the end of the day, even with the most conservative growth forecasts that are out there, these markets are growing three times as fast 
three times as fast, ladies and gentlemen, as developed markets. And this is true across the board. So it's true in Mexico, it's true in Morocco, it's true in Nigeria, and it's true in Indonesia, not just in India and China. When you know, Jim O'Neill came up with the term BRICS and everybody got obsessed with it, the reality is the only thing that people would talk about would be should we invest first in India or in China, China or in India. But there was so much more of the world out there and people like us did extremely well as a result of looking at that. And we have to therefore come up with a clear understanding that when we invest in these growth markets, this is not a temporary blip. What we're experiencing today is an axial shift of the type that comes along every few centuries. And you've got to believe in that because this is what growth markets are all about. We're witnessing a fundamental shift in society and we're witnessing a fundamental shift in opportunity. Now, that does not mean that the West becomes irrelevant. By far and away, that is not the case. It will always remain a place where investment opportunities will be profitably derived and will be derived um, increasingly in different areas. So, for example, if uh, somebody asked me a question, which is the best um, growth uh, emerging market in the world today, I always say the United States of America. Because the opportunity in the United States of America in infrastructure in various other business lines is truly great, but then they still haven't got their act together between the various states, so nobody's really investing in that. As recently as the 1980s, these so-called developing markets were growing at half the pace of the developed markets. By the mid-1990s, the developing markets had become growth markets. So, you know, the term emerging market did not keep pace with what I'm trying to say, and they in the recent past has started growing at three times the rate of growth of these developed markets. And what that means, if you just extrapolate a little bit, is by the end of this decade, more than half of global GDP is going to come from these growth markets. And the last time that was true was when the United States, the most powerful economic force that the world has ever seen, was being torn apart by a crippling civil war. That's how far back you have to go to see when emerging economies were growing at that pace. And if you think about the fact that in the 1860s and 1870s, and I'm a bit of a student of history, so I tend to focus on these things. Um, in the 1860s and 1870s, Europe, which had gone through an incredible expansion phase up until then, either driven by war or by uh, the creation of the great cities that we come to take for granted today, and had um, a municipal bond crisis, went into a bit of a recession and was overtaken by a new economy which was building it cheaper, was building it faster, had more access to resources than any other country at the time. That was the United States of America. It was the emerging market at that time. And, and you, saw the re you see the result of that over the course of the last 100 years. And that's worth keeping in mind. We're used to that thought process that these markets that I'm talking about are playing catch up. But they're not playing catch-up. What we're witnessing is their re-emergence. I mean, I'm sure at the LSE you've come across many speakers who talk about the dominance of India and China uh, in the period before the 18th century. And don't forget that India and China made up more than half of the world's output and the world's economy in the early 1800s. What is different this time, however, is that the arc of history is not just bending backwards towards Asia. It includes Latin America, it includes the Middle East, and Africa as well, which are growing steadily and increasingly faster as we look at the opportunities there. Africa has actually grown faster than East Asia in the last decade. 
And this is a very, very broad-based shift. Economies across the Southern Hemisphere are growing at a multiple of these developed markets. And in other words, what I'm trying to say is that we've gone over the precipice. We've gone over the precipice of what makes an emerging economy into a developing economy, into a growth economy. And this world that we are going to witness in the future will be very, very different from the world that we grew up in. So why am I so sure of these facts? Well, let me give you some statistics but, and some broad themes and outlines behind why I feel so strongly. Centuries from now or even decades from now, when people discuss the most important trend of our lifetimes, they're going to be looking at something which I refer to as the rise of the urbanized middle class, which is going to stand out as the real engine of opportunity in those markets. From a social and economic standpoint, so much of what is happening today, economic growth, climate change, resource scarcity, increased productivity, they're all related to the fact that people are moving into cities and gaining discretionary income. And, you know, we all started off as tribal economies, tribal societies. But now, increasingly, we're citizens of cities. In 2008, for the very first time in human history, the majority of people became urban city dwellers. And this trend is only accelerating. By 2050, there will be 2.6 billion new urban residents. Another way of looking at this is approximately a million people are moving into cities every week as we speak. This is amazing considering that just 60 years ago there were only 83 cities in the world with a population of greater than a million people. Today China alone has twice that number in terms of cities with more than a million people. And that's the second key point around urbanization. The story of our lifetime is that people are moving into cities in the southern hemisphere and every year approximately seven New York cities worth of people are moving into cities in growth markets alone every single year. <coughs> Some places like large parts of Latin America and North Africa have already undergone a major wave of urbanization and this has happened over the last couple of decades but other regions like in Africa and in Asia it's still in the midst of a great migration and those cities are still being built. Now what happens when cities are built? you have affluent communities and you have dispossessed communities. So when you think about the impact, for example, of a big trend that everyone was obsessed with uh, a couple of years ago, which is the Arab Spring, Muhammad Bouazizi did not burn himself because he was making a political statement. He was making an economic statement. He was a resident of a city and he could not feed his family. So you have dispossessed people and you have rich people. And this in turn, this urban disconnect is also going to cause societies to change and the way in which urban environments come together and operate. And within that, what is the overarching preponderant need of government when it looks at these cities? It is to create a little bit more social order and a little bit more sense amongst the disparity that these cities are giving, um, are creating in turn. Now, what cities do and this is a very important point, is that they achieve agglomeration and economies of scale through division and specialization of labor. These opportunities which are created are those that are not easily exploited in rural environments. And throughout history, no society ever has achieved progress 
without the middle class status being achieved by a significant proportion of people inside urban cities. And the reality is that cities today have become the centers of economic life in a country. So I can give you a statistic which I'm happy to be challenged on, which is that if Nigeria is growing at a rate of 6%, I can bet you my bottom dollar that Lagos is growing at 12%. If Indonesia is growing at 4%, Jakarta is growing by 8%. Why? Because in these markets, capital cities bear a disproportionate element of economic growth. And what that means is that the opportunities that are created, whether it's in infrastructure, whether it's in consumer products, whether it's in real estate, are enormous. So people like us, when we look at the trends that we should be investing in, we don't just go and say, today a company came up in logistics, what a great idea it is to buy it. We tend to look at the trends, and then we look at the opportunity within those trends, and then we look at the analysis within individual companies. So we are seeing a massive opportunity surge across the markets in which we live, where opportunity is being created and in turn uh, enabling us to invest in companies that are giving cause for growth in those markets. In the next three decades, ladies and gentlemen, just the next 30 years, there's going to be close to 3 billion people okay, that are going to join the world's middle class. The majority of these 3 billion people are going to join the middle class in growth markets. 65% of them. And that is 40% of the world's current population. These statistics are there and can be checked and are very, very clear. They're pointing to a trend and they're pointing to an opportunity and they're pointing to markets where that opportunity exists. This number is three times the current population of Europe and the United States. And the majority of these people are going to be in growth markets. And this is the greatest upward mobility moment in the history of mankind. And I'm not exaggerating. It's going to reshape consumer demand. It's going to reshape consumption. It's going to reshape opportunity. If you look at the big companies in the world today, whether they're automotive manufacturers, whether they're companies like Coca-Cola and Unilever and Nestle, you take any company of scale and size in the world today, its growth is happening in these markets its investment cycle is being dominated by these markets. And that is where they're hiring for. They're hiring people to take into those markets. And very often, they're becoming local companies in those markets in order to exploit the opportunity that those markets give. The global demand from this new middle class that is emerging is going to double from $20 trillion to $56 trillion by the year 2030. And 80% of this growth in middle-class demand is going to come from markets across Asia, across Africa, across the Middle East, and across Latin America. And these people are going to see their salaries grow five-fold in the same period because that is what the projections are. And an important point that people tend to forget about is that uh, these economies are all fundamentally going to be driven by private consumption. Today, private consumption in growth markets already exceeds 50% of GDP. And in almost every case, it's going to become a larger percentage of GDP. In Southeast Asia, private consumption is set to grow from 55% today to 70% in 2030. And these numbers are coming out of academic institutions like yourselves, research houses, and centers for urban thinking. And these numbers are more or less robust 
and are numbers that more and more policy planners are relying on. Markets in Latin America, like Mexico, Colombia, and Peru, and Brazil, are a little bit different in two ways. Current GDP is even more tilted towards consumption, and it'll increase in Colombia and Brazil, but go down in Mexico and Peru in favor of exports, simply because of what that economy is going through at this particular point in time. Now, this growing middle class, how do we deal with this growing middle class? Because we are witnessing growth coming into cities. We are witnessing a middle class that is rising. And at the same time, we're witnessing a young population in these markets that um, are increasingly hungry, like you are, for opportunity. Where young populations become dispossessed, you have riots. You had you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement. You had street riots in London. You had uh, the Arab Spring and Tahrir Square. All of these people were looking for economic opportunity. All of these people are seeking out a better standard of living. And when you have a 50% unemployment in Tunisia and in Spain of educated, university-graduated youth, then what we're saying is that we as a generation, my generation, not your generation, my generation has lied to the next generation. And we sent people to university by saying, your life will be better than ours was. But by not providing that economic opportunity and not giving them jobs, we lied. And therefore, their right to be, their right to be angry is very much to be respected. And governments have to think about this as being something which is fundamental to uh, how they review and think about their policy measures. Now, there are countries which just lie. Okay, I come from one of those countries. <laughs> there hasn't been a census in my country for the last 25 years. 25 years. Um, when the, and, and it's a very important point because there are elections coming up in Pakistan in the next 10 days. And what you find is that today, if you look at the electoral politics and the way the roles are made of how constituencies are drawn up, 70% to 75% of the uh, National Assembly is represented by people who come from the urban environment. But the fact is that 55 to 60% of people today are living in urban environments, not in rural environments. And therefore, when we come to representation in Parliament, those numbers are completely skewered. But guess what? It's the same political parties that get advantage out of that that result in that census not being held. And Pakistan is not alone in that. Many, many countries in un and underdeveloped economies are resisting the reality that enables entrenched, um, let's call them political classes, to continue to remain entrenched as a result of that. And this is a very important point as well, because economic growth is held up as well if, if they don't see things. So although the opportunity is there, there are intrinsic reasons within some economies where growth will not happen at the trajectory we're expecting it to happen because of vested interests that uh, decline to allow that growth to take place. Now, most countries are going to be driven by domestic demand. There are other countries, like China, for example, that is going to be uh, slowing down as a result of external demand and exports and so on. But China itself is doing something extremely smart. China was symbiotically tied at the hip with the United States of America in terms of its exports and in turn being paid and then becoming the largest holder of US government treasury bills. China is realizing that growth now cannot rely just on that. 
So they're developing their southern regions and they're developing in the next five and ten years access into Southeast Asia through railways, through roads, through building of a phenomenal infrastructure that is going to result in a more balanced growth, not just with the east coast of China, but with the southern states of China. And this is something that is going to change the demography and the economy of China as we go forward as well. And of course, any slowdown there is going to have an impact on other growth markets. But that's just a reality that we have to live with and balance against the growth that I'm talking about. So even as we temper it down, it's a massive opportunity going forward. And we can't deny it because billions, not millions of people, are going to become more empowered and will have more access to money and will have more access to deploying that money than ever before in these markets. Now, the youth bulge, which I referred to just now, the demographic dividend, as I call it, is another very important determinant of consumption and growth. These markets are young. The people in these markets are young. And the median age in these markets is 26. And populations in these markets are coming into the working environment in increasing droves. The average age in certain markets like Nigeria is even lower. And this is more than just a social issue. It's critical to economic growth. The age breakdown of a society determines its ability to grow. The standard measure in a society is the dependency ratio, which measures the population that can work with comparing it to those who typically cannot and need to be sustained and supported, like children in schools or senior citizens in retirement. Growth markets, in turn, all have a demographic dividend because they're based on low dependency ratios compared to uh, developed markets. They have young populations that can contribute economically to society and relatively fewer people to take care of. And within, it becomes interesting when you look at nuances within the growth markets themselves. India, for example, is projected to have a demographic dividend for decades longer than China simply because the dependency ratio is about to start a very, very steep climb. And age also begins to become important because when you correlate it with consumption, spending tends to start in your teenage years and peaks at around 40. That's when young people go to schools like the LSE. It's when young people are out spending money on beer, on food, movies, and clothes. And it encompasses the age when people build families, purchase cars, buy homes, furnish them, and so on. And I can tell you, I've actually benefited from watching this trend in a country like Saudi Arabia. When the oil price bulge happened in the 1970s and, and prosperity came to Saudi Arabia, the first impact was a population explosion. You can just measure this in that country. And so the businesses in the 1980s that did extremely well were companies like Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark, companies that were making baby products. As we moved on into the 90s, fast food businesses became extremely relevant and important in that country, made a lot of money. As we moved into the early 2000s, casual dining replaced fast food because populations were growing in age. Today, that bulge of people that were born in the 70s is reaching 40. Do you know what the biggest consumer industry in Saudi Arabia today is? Spectacles and pharmacies. They're growing at a rapid rate. This is just a fact. This is how people make money. Look at the trend and understand where you're going and invest into it. And without putting too fine a point on this, 
Remember when I said that peaking uh, of spending happens around the age of 40? This happens to be the exact median age of people in developed markets today. So you've reached that peak of spending capacity in these markets. Now, reforms are going to convert this potential into reality. But remember what I said earlier about when reforms are held up by vested interests. And I'm not saying that everywhere young people in cities are going to come in and bang, bang, bang. Everyone's going to make money and the trends will fulfill and, this is, and, and the cycle continues. The potential is there, but time and time again, if you don't have reforms, you don't have economic growth. And that is why it's so important, so important to continue to look at governance within companies and then within economies and within, within societies. Without that, nothing happens. And it's important that the reforms that happen in Asia after the 1990s or the economic reforms that happen in India in the late 1990s or in Nigeria in, the two, in 2003, these are all markets that introduced a set of reforms that in turn have led to growth happening at a far more expedited pace than was happening before. And these are all societies that are undergoing great changes. They are all societies in which, yes, there continues to be edges of corruption, edges of mismanagement, edges of lack of governance and lack of reform processes. But by and large, the economies that are doing well are the economies which have understood that without this, they are going to be societies in crisis going forward in the future. The infrastructure need in these countries is enormous and already the shortfall is being addressed and it is this shortfall that is leading to great wealth being created. If you visit almost any city in the southern hemisphere, as I call it, from Bogota to Jakarta, and you spend the next few hours sitting in a car that isn't moving, you'll realize that just a third of the roads, for example, in Mexico are paved. The opportunity for doing that is so great that as Mexico underwent a change in government, the new president outlined a set of reforms. People began to realize that the opportunity is great. The investment into infrastructure in Mexico today is amongst the highest in the world because everyone is jumping in wanting to invest in infrastructure opportunities in Mexico. And that in turn leads to knock-on demand as well. According to the World Economic Forum, which generally gets, produces some very robust numbers, global requirement for infrastructure spending over the next 20 years is at least $2 trillion a year. McKinsey just produced a report which agreed with that number as well. So from water treatment to power generation to roads to bridges to highways, you name it, trillions of dollars need to be invested into these economies. And by the way, a lot of the people that will be making those investments into these economies are going to be large Western firms. So growth will continue. And therefore, capital generated in one area will be relocated to another because the expertise that continues to exist in these companies will enable that to continue for many years to come. And this infrastructure uh, demand is also growing by the growth in South-South trade which now actually exceeds north-south trade. And in some ways, what that's saying is that that growth is happening between cities and countries. And we don't know how we're going to develop the infrastructure to deal with this issue, because there's no question about it that infrastructure needs to be built. And also remember that infrastructure, in the way I define it, is the amount of capital that needs to be deployed to take a country or a city 
to its next stage of development. And that has to include soft infrastructure. It has to include hospitals. It has to include schools. It has to include areas which traditionally in the West are not referred to as infrastructure. And within that are some of the most compelling investment opportunities of the future in these markets. We know it. We've invested in schools. We've done very well. We've invested in hospitals. Last year, one of our companies merged with another company in, um, in the Far East and created an entity called IHH, which together became the second largest healthcare company in the world after HCA. And we listed it in Singapore, and it was the third largest IPO in the world after Facebook and some other nameless company. But the difference is that this one continues to grow because it's not built on thin air. And this one continues to hold its value um, a year after um, we, we took it public. And finally, I'd like to come to consumer demand, which again I talked about earlier. And there, there is both current shortfall and there is future demand. And look at, look at just financial services in Africa, for example. A massive private sector opportunity. Less than 3% of the population in Africa has a credit card. Only 25% of people have a bank account. And on a per capita basis in the United States, we spend 300 times more on insurance than we do in, uh, in um, Africa and in underdeveloped economies. There are literally more people with credit cards in Italy than in all of sub-Saharan Africa. And so this is creating massive investment opportunity. I've taken you through consumer demand, I've taken you through infrastructure, I've taken you through the rise of urbanization. These are just three examples of where billions of dollars can be deployed, deployed profitably and returned adequately with enormous returns to the people that invest in them. Why? Because the companies, the sectors that we're talking about, there is a clear trend line. We in the private equity industry have to focus on investing in companies that believe in governance, that believe and understand in the economic opportunity, that are willing to open their doors to best-in-class thinking in terms of investment activity, in terms of reporting, in terms of governance models, in terms of compensation for their senior employees. And um, if you visit almost any city in these markets, in what I call gro global growth markets, okay, the opportunity for investment is very clear and compelling. But it's much larger than just addressing shortfalls that I'm referring to right now. When we see this dramatic growth in consumer spending, we'll also see new industries evolving and developing. We're seeing in countries a focus on education and therefore on patent development coming out of universities. It's still incredibly disproportionate compared to the higher quality institutions that exist in the West. But it's beginning to happen. And less of the family budget as prosperity comes will go on necessities and more on consumer products. And HSBC, to use yet another example, has pointed out, spending patterns are going to change when people move from earning $1,000 a year to $3,500 a year. And this is where the greatest change in consumer spending happens um, across um, economic cycles. And a whole fleet of these growth markets from Peru to the Philippines are going to move through the sweet spot in the next couple of decades. In places like Philippines, we're seeing an enormous growth in restaurant businesses, okay, in recreation and personal growth care, which is growing at multiples of 20 and 25 times compared to the levels that we experienced a few years ago. And therefore, 
with all of this in place, most sensible investors across the world are beginning to realize that um, from less than a third today of global uh, consumption, we're going to go to two-thirds of global consumption in these markets by the year 2050. And the sectors, apart from the ones that I've talked about, are going to include everything from clothing to audio to high-tech, from recreation to restaurants to financial services. And these are jarring numbers. These are big numbers because they involve billions of people. And they involve billions of people that are now ready to stand up and be counted. And they speak to the scale of the shift that we're experiencing in these markets. So that is why I say that when we look at the world a few decades from now, we will have experienced a fundamental shift in the way it thinks, in the way it looks, and the way it's going to act, both socially and economically. It's going to be fueled by urbanization. It's going to be fueled by young people. It's going to be fueled by a dramatic rise in middle classes. But within all of this, we're going to see opportunity that we have not seen before. But of course, as I mentioned to you earlier, the caveat is always there. The caveat is that some economies will grow slower because some despot will come in, somebody will come in and screw up an entire economy with uh, uh, some very short-term thinking. I hope I don't offend anyone by saying that in a country like Venezuela, where, which had enormous oil wealth, a lot of it got squandered because it was directly uh, satiating people uh, rather than building an economic infrastructure that in turn could have led to a greater degree of prosperity. Now, the broad recognition that these growth markets are going to be the engines of growth is something that every investment bank, every professional investor, every global institutional investor today recognizes. Somebody, I think Ulf said $40 billion are going into these markets in terms of investment activity to private equity firms. Unfortunately, a lot of that still today is going to the big Western firms because you don't get fired for giving money to Carlyle or Blackstone. The reality is more and more people are beginning to realize the importance of one very important fact, which is local presence cannot ever be substituted. The quality of having feet on the ground, the quality of understanding what a local market's exigencies are, what a local market's opportunities are, where the threats are, where um, money can be made safely cannot happen by flying in and out. So more and more firms that have a presence on the ground, firms that have a capacity to hire people on the ground are being looked at by global investors as being partners in their progress and being um, where the real opportunity shift is going to happen. Now, I'm, I guess by now you've worked out a vociferous proponent of investing in these markets. But also, as I mentioned earlier, being a student of history and learning from all the lessons that we have experienced in the past, not all markets are going to go through this growth rate and not all markets are going to evolve and develop in the same manner. But enough will for this investment opportunity to be compelling. These global growth markets are going to transform our world, as the title of this session says. It's going to transform our businesses. It's going to transform our communities. And therefore, it is extremely important for private equity as an industry to understand that and to be a partner in that progress of development and the evolution of businesses in these markets. So when I look at a firm like mine, uh, we've taken 5% of our top line from the day we started. And we've said, and that adds up to many tens of millions of dollars of our top line, of our management fee, and said we will be investing this money back into the communities 
in which we are operating. And therefore, that's enabled us to invest with over 100 NGOs in the markets in which we live and operate. And I you know, will say something that my comms team always gets extremely upset with, which is I say, we happen to own 150 companies around our markets. And if I can infect each of these companies with the virus of sustainable thinking, and they say, you, don't, you should not use the word infect, you should not use the word virus. They're bad words. I say, well, that's the only way I can explain it, which is if I can infect every one of those companies with the virus of giving, then by the time we sell them, they will become socially responsible corporate citizens. And if every single one of those gives away half a million dollars, a million dollars a year, that movement results in over $150 million a year being deployed into communities. That's crucially important. Equally important, apart from the give, is the act of uh, understanding the economies in which you operate and investing in a sustainable manner into those economies. Because I believe that with that kind of thinking, if you remember I said at the start, sustainable investing is good investing and good investing is profitable investing. As a result of that, we have experienced, as Ulf referred to at the start, um, in a company like KESC, which had we employed the best consultants in the world to design a broken, damaged company, they couldn't have done a better job when we moved into it. And the fact that three years on, four years on, we've transformed that company and enabled you know, case studies to be written about it around the world, where it's become one of the success stories around privatization because we took a sustainable approach to developing that business. Similarly, we have a business in Africa called Brookside Dairy, which only deals in a sustainable manner with 100,000 people that at the back rely on the business to generate their livelihood. We have a business in Peru called Condor Travel, which has transformed an entire community around the fact that they are part and parcel of a tourist trade that brings people into their homes and that enables their local economy to transform. So that's just three or four examples, but the reality is if you run your business and you run your thinking along those lines, then almost everything that you do will result in some social good and a lot of economic good coming out. So ladies and gentlemen, looking for jobs, please find them in global growth markets. That's where your talents are best utilized. The opportunities there are much greater than anywhere else. And I personally believe that what we are going to experience in the coming years is transformational compared to what we've seen so far. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Arif, for that sweeping and shall I say visionary view of emerging markets. I think if you like Global that, growth markets. Global growth markets, sorry, yes. <laughs> Uh, why don't you take a seat, and uh, the other panelists here, take a seat, and well, quickly introduce them, and then I will disappear. Um, so, next we are with, we have Diana Noble, who I think is, is a perfect person to have a panel around private equity in emerging markets, because Diana has, firstly, a background in just Western private equity investing from, in, uh, she was an associate of Permira, one of the biggest Western private equity um, funds, and is now the head of the CDC, which is the UK government's um, financial, uh, sorry, uh, development finance institution is what it's called. And it's the oldest such institution and one of the biggest ones in, in the world. 
And Diana is actually now the kind of limited partner in many of the funds that invest uh, in emerging markets through the, the way of private equity. So she is the one that gives a RIF money and is very unhappy when he screws it up by putting it into bad power plants, which he hasn't done so far. Um, <laughs> next to Diana, we have Tsega Gebrezes, who is from Ethiopia, is that right? And uh, Sega is uh, both an entrepreneur and a private equity investor. Sega has a background as uh, one, of the main, uh, one of the main people behind the Celtel investment, which is maybe one of the biggest hits, if I may say so, in emerging markets private equity. That was a, a telecom startup in Africa that was grown into uh, the biggest pan-African cell phone company, which really has had a transformational uh, kind of effect on sub-Saharan African development and, and society. And then after that, now Sega is, is, um, is one of the founding partners of uh, Sapta Capital, which is a private equity firm focused on African uh, smaller market investment, I guess, than what, what uh, Arif is doing uh, in general. And then to lead this panel, we have the esteemed Professor Felda Hardiman, who's a professor at Harvard Business School and is uh, guilty of writing many of the cases that the poor students had to sit through when we taught this. Um, Felda is also a prominent uh, practitioner. He is a senior partner at Bessemer Venture Capital, which is one of the most successful American venture capital firms that has also invested into emerging, emerging markets. And, and most importantly, Felda was a visiting professor here at the LSE and helped me set up the teaching program we have at, uh, at the LSE in finance and private equity. So Felda, I'll, uh, I'll trust you to take it from here. Thank you. And it's, it's wonderful to be back at the LSE. It's, um, this is a wonderful place. Um, let me first start, and I'm going to make a deal with Arif. The deal is, is I will try to refer to emerging markets as global growth markets, provided that when I slip up, you're not going to jump in every time and remind me. <laughs> but I, I'd like to refer to them as less developed global growth markets, if that's all right. As you pointed out, the United States is a growth market, so let's refer to them as, and that has the nice ring of the LDGGs. So every. Um, and, and uh, Arif, thank you for, that really was quite a good overview, uh, and it, 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 it does actually talk about the, the real opportunity in these markets. It, it also made me think that if all those people in Italy sent their credit cards to sub-Saharan Africa, we would solve problems in two places, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but what we want to do on this panel, I think, and we will try to get the audience involved um, uh, at, at some undefined point later on. We, uh, there are microphones that we can have you ask the panelists questions. And this is um, as knowledgeable a panel as can exist in this kind of investing. Um, uh, but what, what I'd like to do is get under the statistics and under the, the sort of the sweeping vision that Arif talked about as to how private equity actually accesses these opportunities? I mean, what does private actually actually do on the ground? And in the end, is it any good? I mean, A, can you make money? And B, 
what do you leave behind? Is this, is this really a, a good thing for the world? And um, I, I will I'll end my opening remarks by just saying, in general, when people talk about private equity, what, what, when, um, when people talk about the theory of private equity, it doesn't make any difference whether it's um, minority growth investing, whether it's ma majority investing, whether it's venture capital, sort of you know, little tinker toy investing. It's the same process. What, what the people on the stage do is they select projects, they credential those projects. So when, um, when um, Sacha, for example, um, invests in a healthcare company in Nigeria, the fact that their investors actually allows them to attract better management, allows them to attract bank uh, uh, different kinds of bank loans and so forth. When Arif in invests in this famous power plant, which we're going to have to hear about, uh, uh, because every time Wolf mentions it, he, t he talks about the, the customers don't pay, the government doesn't do what they said they were going to do, and the place is a disaster. And every time uh, Arif mentions it, it is the shining example of uh, private equity. So we will have to get to the bottom of that. But when he does that, his credibility, the credibility of Abraj, actually is brought to that organization and helps it make its way. So credentialing is really important. And then the last thing is governance. Um, and governance is a simple thing. It says, what are you going to do in the next six weeks? And then you show up later and say, what did you do in the last six weeks? And what do we do in the next six weeks? It's accountability. Um, so. I, we'll give Arif a bit of a break, and I'd like to start at the top of the stack, and if it's all right with Diana. Diana, you have a, sp a particularly special role in this ecosystem, um, and because the entire audience probably doesn't understand what a limited partner is, if you wouldn't mind describing that, but you are the real source of capital here, but quickly move on to how do you choose whether you're going to invest in one private equity firm or another, and are you looking for returns, or are you looking for doing good? <laughs> I didn't mean to put you in that corner yeah, that's right fine. away. Um, let me set the context first before Please. we come to, come to the answer. So after Arif's sort of tour d'horizon, um, we're living in a two-track world. I mean, it's almost as if, my take on it, is almost as if someone up there in 2007 looked at the world and said, you guys are doing too well, you guys aren't doing well enough, and has cast uh, the, the modern equivalent of a plague of locusts on the US and Europe, which is the financial crisis. And this is going to create a hiatus for the next 10 years or so. So for you, those of you who are out in the audience looking at where to... Uh, to look to invest in private equity and where to uh, apply for jobs. It's going to be, and I'm sure you know this, Bain says that there are roughly, there's roughly twice the amount of capital being sought in developed private equity markets than will be raised. So think about this as the consequences for employment in that area. However, in growth markets, it's completely different. These are really nascent, fast-growing uh, markets that are going to deliver really interesting returns. And as Felder says, as CDC, we sit in the middle of this. So one thing that we do, and the, the main thing that we do at the moment, is to select the private equity funds that will get our capital. 
We only focus on South Asia and, uh, and Africa, so I can only talk about those two markets. But when we think about who we want our capital to go to, we do, as Felder says, think about two things. We think about financial returns, just like any other LP, but we also think about what kind of impact do we want to achieve with our money. And we've been very clear about the latter one. I think everyone in the room knows about you know, financial returns and IRRs and how you create them. Uh, achieving impact is a much fuzzier area, as we all know, and there's a great long potential shopping list of impact that you can achieve when you invest in these markets. You pay taxes, you employ people, you provide goods and services to the poor, you promote the private sector, and you demonstrate success that attracts more capital to these places. We at CDC, though, have provided much more of a focus than that, and we've said we really care particularly about two things. We, can, we care about creating jobs, and we care about our capital going to harder places within our geographies where capital doesn't flow as easily. And we like the job story because at the macro level, it's so obvious that jobs are needed. You know, Two-thirds of people both in Africa and in India that are of working age don't have stable employment, are either unemployed or in what's called vulnerable employment. This is enormous. And then if you think about the demographic increases, the need for jobs is enormous. And then at the micro level, the impact that you have on a person and their family in creating a job is enormous as well. And you know, if you talk about being inspired, and I do this job because I want to be inspired, it's the stories we get from the people that we employ. And it's so interesting how the common theme is normally, I'm really pleased I've got this job, and what it means is that I can put my children through education. So then think about the impact, the knock-on impact on, on, uh, on people community and the yeah, development of the economy and communities, etc. That's probably a long enough answer for you. For, for so, well, let me just ask, let me just push you on a, a couple of those things. So you have a choice between firm A and firm B, and um, so you're going to invest in the harder places to invest in, which is likely to mean you're going to get less return, at least when you time value it? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. Why? No, not necessarily. No, good, good, good. We've, just... we've, lo we've looked at the returns that have been achieved by our companies, that the companies that have been invested in. So we look through the funds and say, where were the companies that the funds invested in? And we've divided our geographies into four types, into nothing's easy in our world, right? Easier, hard, harder, hardest. <laughs> so in Africa, that means South Africa's there, Nigeria's there, Mozambique's here, and South Sudan's there. Okay, four categories. If you look at the returns that have been generated across those categories, they actually go up from the far left, up, up, and then they plummet. So what that's saying, to me anyway, and we need to do some more sort of research and thought around this, is your capital act can actually flow ahead of where mainstream capital is flowing, and you can generate great returns. But your issues are about investment judgment, really understanding your environment, because these are tough places, right. and having, as Arif said, local teams that really understand the environment. 
but then it gets you get to a point where that environment makes it very difficult to generate those things. So before I move on to Sega to ask her what she would do with that cap, I have one other question, just again for baseline here. You could just as easily invest that money in local banks if they exist. If they don't, you could set them up and let them loan that money. Why, why equity from where you sit? Yeah, it, private equity has been uh, an asset class, if you call it an asset class, for about 30 years. So we know quite a lot about it. I mean, Elise Wright, it's sort of been through different evolutions over those 30 years. But we, we've learned a number of things. There's two real drivers that make it different from public markets. One is that you have shareholders who are incredibly informed, both about the business that they're investing in and also typically the sector and the environment as well, much more informed than you would get in public markets. And they're also very, very engaged. So it may not be six weeks, it may every six weeks, it may be every day, every <laughs> week. Yes that the old shareholder is speaking, is speaking to you. Secondly, the relationship between that shareholder and the management team is dynamic and aligned around value creation. Again, very different from public markets, where public markets, of course, you can sell if you don't like the management team. In private markets, you can't. So you're very, very close. And what that's shown over 30 years is that that alignment and that quality of knowledge and the closeness creates returns wherever it happens. So, Sega, talk us through an investment, what you do on the ground. And, and it's important to note that um, Satya Capital happens to generally invest in a minority way. They don't own 100% or 90%, a majority of the, of the business. So. So wherever you go, you, you're still convincing people, whatever you, <laughs> you do, because you can't tell them just go and do that because you don't own a majority necessarily. But let's walk us through a, a typical investment, and I will feel free to interrupt you to make sure that it's clear. How does this magic happen that Diana's investing in? Um, I mean, in some ways, if you think about private equity, we're people who are saying, hi, can I please give you some money? and I will work for you for free. But I will take something back if we create something interesting. So in a sense, it's capital that's coming actually and saying, unlike, a, let's say, I think you mentioned, would you put the money in a bank and um, invest in businesses? The bank is saying, here's some money, and here's your schedule of payments, entrepreneur company, you will pay it to me in this order. If you don't, I will come after you and enforce payment, right? So it's kind of a schoolmaster relationship with some pretty serious rules around it. And I'm not saying private equity doesn't have the rules. But in our case, we're actually approaching companies and entrepreneurs with the idea that we're going to put the cap, you know, we're capital with knowledge and an alignment. So in effect, we are providing the capital to support the entrepreneur, the company, the business. And then we're actually saying, look, we will work with you to take what you've got already, which hopefully is successful in some way or another, and will help make it more successful. We will help build it. And, you know, in an ideal world, where can be the rocket that helps launch the satellite into orbit, okay? So 
we are going to work with the management. We're going to work with the shareholders. To Give us an example. Walk us through. I'm, sure, I'm serious. I'll, I'll Walk us through something. Through. What, uh, so let's say I'll just use let one of our first investments that we've made, which is in a healthcare company. It was a group, a family business, where the family had invested over 20 years to build a business that had about 1.2 billion. Uh, sorry, 1.2 million in cash flows or EBITDA. After 20 years, they were still struggling to recruit management. They were still This is in Africa? In Africa, in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. They had two sites or two hospitals, if you will. So what we actually did was to go to them and say, we will partner with you. We will work with you to refine and define what the strategy should be. We will help you recruit talent. We will help you bring board members. We will help you bring a new CEO, a new CFO, but also institutionalize the business so that it works in the same best practice and in the same style that you see here in London or in New York or whatever, but obviously apply to the realities of the local market such that by the time we finish, we have a very clear focused business strategy, a very clear way in which we're going to operate it, and, you know, and, and then we start. Now then reality sets in which is some of the changes we want to make, they don't like. There's some sacred cows that they don't want to change. There's some things that don't make sense that they want to do. We discover some few things that you say, hmm, that's not nice, that shouldn't be there. So there's a period also, if you will, because I think as Diana said, we are active and we're engaging with them on a day-to-day -day basis. That's nice when you get along and you agree on what should happen. But it's a bit of a pain when you don't agree until you get to a solution that makes sense. But H how do you enforce that solution? Because in this in this sure. hospital company, you're, yeah. are you're um, you own how much? Thirty percent, eighty percent? Yeah, in double. So in this hospital business, luckily we have majority. So at the end, we can enforce things okay. to happen by majority. However. Um, I mean, that is the last resort contract or rights that we've put into the documents is also a last resort, but the really the best way to enforce it is by persuasion mm. of the correctness of what we're doing. So to the extent that upfront when we made the investment, there was an alignment about the vision, as the founder said, I would like to build a business that is going to be like the net care of Africa, but emanating from Nigeria, to the extent that idea was upfront similar, to the extent that we have an alignment and a focus about what the goal is, which is to build really fantastic healthcare for Africans, you know, at the top quality so they don't have to travel to London to get it. And then we convince them that what we're saying makes sense, that it in the end is the most sustainable and peaceful way to get there. Obviously, if we have majority, that's in many ways. But you're not exactly Florence Nightingale. You're not an Elon Mastonary institution. How, you how do you make money from this? Yeah, I, look, the simple focus is at the end of the day, if we, we figure out what is the business that we're, what is the service or the product that we're trying to deliver? In this case, healthcare. You don't really have to describe a lot to say that it, it's actually, it feels good to do it. It's a nice thing to do. And if done profitably, that allows us to bring in more capital to build more of these hospitals and for other LPs also to follow through and build the business. So the focus is vigilantly on saying, 
apply best practice, build a good business, and a good business, I think, as Arif, you kept saying, you know, good investment, sustainable investment is good investment. It has to make profit. It has to make returns. And that's the only way we can actually serve the interest of the investors, but also the interest of the community we're serving. And it's really one and the same. So just as full disclosure, I do sit on Sacha's investment board. I happen to know that this one's doing well. Let's talk about the power plant. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you or if in your, or if really is a, a, a visionary in, um, in this space, uh, which means he can take a lot of my um, kidding. <laughs> uh, but um, you, you've described this as uh, a private equity 3.0, the, the Karachi plant. Can you give a relatively brief summary of what you were actually doing there? And the, the truth is, I'm, I want to push you on this. Right now, I don't know whether you can hold this at above your cost basis. And is that bad? Is it, how does that fit into the overall scope of things? Sure. But because one of the important things I think that uh, about all this that Diana actually keyed on right away is this is an illiquid asset. If you don't like what's going on, you can't sell it and leave. You gotta fix it. So this famous power plant that everyone talks about, um, we invested in it in 2008. And it's a business where, like I said at the outset, if you could have employed the best consultants in the world to design a broken company, then this was it. Um, but when we finished our diligence, what we realized is that it's one of the last integrated utilities left on the planet. It's transmission, distribution, and generation in a city of 18 million people, which in turn generates 60% of the country's tax revenues and 28% wow. of the country's GDP. Now, what that meant was that the opportunity, electricity is the heart of an economy. If we get it right in a company that had was experiencing 12 to 14 hours of load shed a day and had not experienced a single dollar of investment in the preceding 28 years in generating capacity, then our economic model would work out just right. We came in into that investment at a billion dollar valuation. We bought management control. And the billion dollar valuation was a thousand megawatts at a million dollars a megawatt. Standard rule of thumb in the power industry. So we came in at what we considered to be a discount value anyway. When we came into that business. But this is a big check. I would just like to point check. out to the audience. It's a, it's a very big check. But, you know, the opportunity there was enormous because we had written many big checks. And we as a business have returned four and a half billion dollars to our investors at IRRs that are very, very se serious. So we're not people that kind of do things by just taking the punt. We knew that it, it economically it would make sense. But when I refer to it as PE 3.0, it had such an enormous social impact in terms of what it could do if we got it right. If a housewife can rely on electricity being on when she's preparing food, if a student cannot, does not need to study by candlelight, and if an industry can operate uninterrupted for 24 hours a day across three shifts, then that 60% tax ratio and that 28% GDP can double and you can change the life of a country. So starting with that premise, over the last four years, this was an overstaffed company. We have reduced employment from 23,000 people to 11,000 people. We still need to go another 3,000. And in a country which is heavily unionized, it is important that we do it right. 
Our model was the Calcutta Electricity Company in mm -hmm. India, which did exactly that and transformed itself. So employment was one side. We added 1,000 megawatts of electricity. We caused a billion dollars of new investment to be made by people like the IFC and the ADB and other banks in the system. And today, how does that wait, how does that happen? Caused a billion. I mean, th uh, this is an important. The point. fact that we were in there and the <laughs> fact that we stood with our money. The first 400 million dollars came from us. So you're right. standing there saying, "Look, Absolutely. we're taking responsibility. You're going to we're going to be below you. You're going to be above us. Absolutely. And it's safe for you to put your money here." Yeah. So investors are the most logical and cold-hearted people, and they know exactly what works and what doesn't work. And this is empirically evidenced by the number of funds they've invested in over a long period of time. So when we gave the hypothesis, they understood. Of course, everyone was worried, especially with the noise that was generated around a PE firm going in to manage what was a national asset. It was the first privatization of a power business in the country. We didn't buy into the privatization. We bought it from the people that had bought into the privatization, which was a failed investment. So having done that, four years on, I'll just tell you, that the company has turned EBITDA positive for the first time in 20 years. We've brought the staffing level down. We've increased the, um, the business from 1,000 megawatts to 2,200 megawatts of sustainable electricity. We have done agreements with the state grid. And today, not only is it EBITDA positive, but it has genuinely transformed into being a much loved company because in a country where every other city is still experiencing 16 to 18 hours of load shed a day. We have got zero load shed for industry, zero load shed for areas that pay us our electricity bills on time, and we operate a model where communities have come together to force people within the communities to pay their bills and therefore uh, allow electricity to come. So, so well, I, just let me, let me, I just want a, a few other details, though. Do, is this, if you look at the uh, the stack of papers that was brought to your investment committee that said it was going to go this way. Yeah. How close was it to going this way? So You've had is, to put more capital in, I so, think. So it's also a company which is listed. Mm -hmm. We bought it three rupees a right. share. The price today is nine rupees a share. It's tripled mm -hmm. by way of the public markets. But we don't use that as a proxy for real value because there are not that many shares in the market. Right. What we actually saw was that when the Asian Development Bank and the IFC converted their debt finance into equity, component of it Great. at a valuation that was exactly where we wanted it, then that to me is the true test of success. When new development finance institutions and new investors in the power sector are beginning to look at it and saying, can we have a piece? That's the measure of success. So for me, transforming this company, producing employment in other sectors of the economy, and doing things that had not been done before. I'll give you one very quick example. Um, Karachi is home to the largest cattle colony in the world. Um, within an urban environment. The sea around Karachi is yellow simply because all the effluent goes untreated into the sea. We put together with USAID and the World Bank and a Canadian technology company a uh, project that created the largest biogas plant in the world, which we're in the process mm -hmm. of doing, which is going to produce uh, from 8,000 tons of uh, cattle refuse, is going to produce 25 megawatts of electricity, and 150,000 tons a year of organic fertilizer. It is going to transform the life of that entire community which it currently is living in squalor. It enables us to bring them into the health paradigm. And more importantly, the electricity that is generated then goes to power the rickshaws in the city, which are currently consuming kerosene 
So the air quality improves, the uh, sustainable employment is generated by the community and it is being touted by the IFC which is currently doing the final feasibility around the project as the largest biogas plant in the world but one which is transformational to the life of the city. So, Diana, how do you, you you're one of Arif's large LPs. You own a, a very big piece of the capital that he that he puts out. How do you feel about a riff going in and making 15,000 people unemployed? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, do. I, I do want to point out this: everybody on this stage here is it's it's a it's a wonderful example of positive schizophrenia because on the one hand you you hear a riff sounding honestly like a um, you know, someone coming in from an NGO or something talking about all these great things, and then on the other hand saying, well, we have to be cold-hearted, and we, by the way, we just put 15,000 people out of work. Um, so there is a balance that you're hearing in this. But he took a big risk, and this was a big check. I just, $400 million is, seri is a serious big check, even in a, in a fund the size of a barrage. Um, um, and all these checks can go wonky, right? So that means a big part of that fund could go away, which means a big part of the capital you're going to reinvest. Plus, there's a lot of broken China to make this work. How do you feel? Could I just say one quick, very quick thing before? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan. You, you know, you uh, could no, save less, this for the limited partner less, meeting if you want than, to talk to less than 3%, <laughs> Less than 3% of our portfolio in the last 13 years has lost, has lost money. I, I, I think that's number important. Two, yep. Number two our 150 companies employ hundreds of thousands of people. And more importantly, the quantum of people that we create jobs for, which is why people like Diana look at us, is significantly greater than removing inefficiency in a single company. I, I hear you. The fact that your <laughs> the tone is so defensive says I've actually found some good questions. So, uh, Diana. No, actually, I was going to say good things even before you, uh, you, you said it for me. Um, you know, the commercial imperative is there. Of course, what the, our capital has to create, build, sustain businesses that are going to be there for the long term and that are going to not just employ the people that are there today, but, you know, the next generation as well. So, you know, when companies become inefficient, things have to be done. So, you know, don't take our job focus as being a sort of a very purist one that isn't commercial. It absolutely isn't. Um, there's obviously a portfolio spread element to this as well. So we do love to see really ballsy, challenging things done that kind of change the paradigm of a business. And provided the GP has the skills and the knowledge and the commitment to make it happen, we just take our hats off to them. And absolutely, in this case, it's a fantastically interesting and ballsy and wonderful story. Uh, you know, when we're acting as, a, as an LP, and we do make direct investments ourselves as well, but when we're acting as an LP, we feel a little bit like you, you all know the film uh, Mission Impossible. <laughs> we're the voice on the telephone. <laughs> These guys are Tom Cruise. And we're really happy that way. So if you say, you know, who do we want to choose? We want to choose people who are going to be Tom Cruise for us. Arif, I, I really I've, like lived, I've lived. I've lived a long really time. Nice, right? <laughs> I, I never thought I would hear you being referred to as Tom Cruise. I love it. <laughs> is this a great limited partner or what? As she gives you money and she calls you Tom Cruise. As good as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, let, let's just, this is useful, and I'm going to open it to the audience in a, in a minute. And I'll start with Sega on this, but I'd like to hear a comment from all of you. Private equity, for um, all of the rancor that it gets in front of various government committees in various places, um, is actually a, quite a small business. It's quite a small business. Um, it's uh, a worldwide um, single digits percentage of the hedge fund business, um, just for example. Um, so all this great good in these uh, lesser developed global growth companies, uh, is this a good enough tool? Is this a robust enough tool? Because I listened to, I, I listened to the story of the hospital in Nigeria, you're dealing every day. I mean, this is a lot of work. And how many companies can you handle at one time? Just, you have, you have, I know you have four partners and you have help, but any one partner is handling, you're not handling 20 companies, no. you're handling what? I can get three or four. Three or four. Three or four. Highly skilled people. Uh, if you ask any LP, highly overcompensated people. Um, not to mention good looking, right? And not to mention good looking, <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, but it's, but it, it's a very high skill level to do this. And for all this good, is this a robust enough vehicle to actually get done what needs to get done? I mean, if this is about, by the way, the, one of the greatest things you said in your speech was the tie of urbanization to creating the value. And Africa is urbanizing faster than China, according to McKenzie, just to, to name one. Is this a good enough tool is the question. Can you can you kiss all the frogs? Can you, so I, I'll start with Sagan and just go down this way as to whether you think maybe, if I grant you that it's a great tool for development as well as making money, is it good enough? Do we have to get better? Do we have to get bigger? How do we do that? Yeah, I mean obviously it's, it's um, you know, more private equity is obviously gonna be very useful but it is an anchor and an important part of the entire ecosystem. It is a very essential part of it, as I said earlier, because it's capital coming with knowledge and effort. Um, it underpins and supports businesses to have access to this sort of, let's say the bottom end of the capital or the balance sheet that, you know, by let's say creating good examples of success is gonna attract more of it. Um, and that also is really the beginning and the start that allows companies to be able to access other sources of financing, whether it's you know mezzanine debt, senior debt, and the like. But it is an absolutely essential part. There is not a lot of it. There should be more of it. Um, but you're saying the multiplier makes it worth the effort, despite the size. That it yeah, it is robust yeah, enough to do yeah, this. Absolutely. Diana? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways to answer your question. I'll just uh, uh, focus on one, the, the question of sort of is it, is it big enough, should it be bigger? I think in growth markets, we have to be really careful that capital doesn't, uh, doesn't flow ahead of the ability of that market to generate returns and ahead of the sort of the economic sector that you're trying to support. So, you know, let's take India as an example. Um, India private equity showed fantastic returns between 2000 and 2005, six, sort of in a whirlwind, any turkey fries kind of comes, <laughs> comes to mind. Um, as a result, in 2007, 2008, a wall of capital hit the private equity industry, backing 
lots of very inexperienced teams uh, and in a, in a market that wasn't really, um, wasn't really ready for it. As a result, very few people have generated returns over the last, uh, over the last five years. So I think that they're always, I would always sort of temper the, you know, how much capital before you say how big. So I, I don't think you have to kiss all the frogs to start with. <coughs> and uh, in India, since you use that as an example, I uh, am very fond of saying that the problem with investing in India is that the Indian entrepreneurs have not yet finished getting rich. Okay. <laughs> so what that means is that the opportunity that exists in India today is still predominantly local, yeah. and foreign investors find it very difficult to invest in India. Having said that, I think when, we, when I said you don't have to kiss all the frogs, at the end of the day, there is a filtering process in private equity that enables you to find those companies where value can be added. We talked about healthcare. I mentioned the company that we invested in healthcare. We went from six hospitals in Turkey to 19 hospitals in Turkey over a five-year period, including acquisition, including new startups. Why? Because the healthcare opportunity in Turkey was large and because the state wasn't investing, so the opportunity was there. We've done the same thing in education. We've done the same thing across sectors. We're sector agnostic. So you have to remember that in our markets, it is actually not about financial leverage. It's not about the way PE was built up in the West. It's all about growth capital. It's all about find, finding the right industries and the right companies. And like you said earlier, it's about finding the entrepreneurs that are willing to listen and you talk to them and you understand and you analyze where their needs are and then you build up a relationship that is also symbiotic as you go forward. So you just have to find enough companies. Now we may be very large in the business that we run but the reality is it's still only 150 companies in a universe of arguably 100,000 companies, yeah. right? So you invest where you see the opportunity. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, if you look at Africa, it depends on the perspective in a sense, right? So if you look at the continent or, you know, the GGMs or, what, you know, the growth market. The LDGGs. The LDGGs. We're making that up um, here now. It's, um, you know, and, and when you talk about the demographics of the country and the lack of products and services and infrastructure on the continent, the need for quality private equity with the knowledge, with the skills to come in and do what it does when it does it properly is tremendous. So the bottleneck is actually the, you know, the talent as you talk about and the people who are actually going to go and execute on the ground. But from the, the, the uh, management talent. Yeah, the management talent. If I look at my own country, Ethiopia, I mean, 80 million people who have to pay more for everything that you get here for less and who can afford it less than we can. So I think sitting in London, it's a question of should we have more or not is a question to ask here. But when you actually look, especially the emerging markets in Africa, the um, value of intelligent capital executed properly to build good businesses is tremendous from a human yes. need mm -hmm. perspective. Um, so it's a more of a luxury question we can ask here, but a total necessity that can transform lives in a real way. 
so looking at it from pick, the other side. And Go if ahead. you pick the winners further, yes. then the opportunity to transform the economies is, is significantly yeah. greater, and you can move across economies as well. But just to, uh, in my last inflammatory question, then we'll open it to the audience, is so you pick the winners. And by the way, you guys are not Elon Musk and institutions. You make money, as does Diana, I hope, because she recycles it. Um, uh, she needs to make money in order to recycle sure. it back. Um, but but you guys make money, and and it's not just the CDCs of the world that you're making money for. It's the large pension funds. It's the sovereign wealth funds. It's the first world, if I may use that term, the developed the pools of capital in the developed countries, and they get their money back multifold mm -hmm. when they invest with you. So is this, as for all this glorious talk, aren't you simply just one more mechanism for extracting value out of these places? Actually, you're not asking an incendiary question because all the years I've known you, you are an investor yourself as well. And <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm here as a professor. <laughs> I'm here as a professor. I'm under disguise. You can't get away <laughs> So I'll turn that around and say to you, for all those years you've been making money in the West, <laughs> it's time you... Touche. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but th this has to be dealt with, though. Is, is this a... Um, I mean, you, there's friction costs here th that are your organizations, mm -hmm. and this is those pools of capital get get uh, wealthier. I, I would argue, by the way, just the inevitability of the larger the pools of capital, the more they have to s seek far and wide to get returns. So, in some sense, you're standing in the middle of an inevitability. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Do you want to take yeah, a crack I mean, at that? Again, and, then I'll, and then I'll open sure. it to, there's going yeah. to be, a, you have mics, there'll be mics, so if you want to ask a question, start signaling to this person here who will bring you a mic. But go yeah, ahead. You know, again, it depends on, it's the perspective. So if I'm, you know, in Africa, a country looking at... Um, you were born in Africa, you live in Africa now, you've here exactly. all Thank the way you. from so South Africa. Thank you. You know, all around, um, you know, the... I would welcome more of it because for the investor to be able to take more, so if Arif wants to make 10 times more, wonderful, but he has to create it. And uh, for him to make that 10 times more, that means there's going to be that many jobs, that many, also wealth created locally because also in these markets, we need to create people and opportunities for people to create wealth because that gets reinvested there. They can do philanthropic things, etc. So I think you know, fabulous. Fair enough. Questions, for the first question from the audience. Is it working? It's yeah. working. Okay. Um, if I can ask uh, if Felda can take off his professor hat and maybe also Dan. Um, so we've talked a lot of, about PE. I was also wondering about more early stage investing and uh, uh, venture capital. Why hasn't venture capital gone um, as much into emerging markets as, as private equity? Uh, the reason the question was directed at me is the firm that I'm affiliated with is a, a, essentially a venture capital firm, an early, very early stage firm. And the answer is it's much harder. Um, uh, and it is happening. Um, and for example, my firm now has 14 people on the ground in India we arrived there in 2004, so we're not making a lot of money. <laughs> but, uh, but we will. Uh, but we need, frankly, to have the infrastructure 
there first, if you think about what, what we really need. And secondly, uh, the, the, the early stage market is as labor intensive as what these folks do, the, the larger scale private equity people do. The venture market is way, way, way more labor intensive because if you think about it, it is um, the, you're inventing something from scratch, you're building something completely from scratch, it's two people and a dog and a PowerPoint slide and, um, and it, the, con the amount of contact is much greater. So venture capital in general is actually even more local, as local as private equity is. And you should think of venture capital as a branch of private equity. If you think of private equity writ large, then there's large scale, the LBOs, the Blackstones of the world and so forth. Um, and then the more regional funds and then the middle market kind of funds and then there are growth equity funds and way down here is angel investing in venture capital. We, 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 we do the same thing except it's a much more local problem. So if, if, if you can put three people in Silicon Valley and be part of that deal stream and um, be, you know, for the last, uh, since 1981, uh, our returns out of Silicon Valley have been something compounded on the order of mid-30s. It's just an extraordinary thing. And that's because the, there is this flywheel going. Until the flywheel starts in other places, we don't show up. And right now the flywheel exists Shanghai, Herzliya, Thames Valley. It's a little flywheel in the Thames Valley, not a big one. Um, uh, you know, Boston, Austin, Bangalore. Um, when the flywheel shows up in Africa, we'll be there. That's all I can say. But it's, a, it's, it's just a... But it's changing. It's, it is changing. And, and by the way, since we are a bigger firm, we, we were the lead investor in, in Celtel, totally by accident, but we, we, we were the lead investor and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful. Right, next. Wh whoever's got the mic. A very good evening. I'm Dr. Saurabh Agarwal, Vice Chairman, Indian Institute of Finance. My question is uh, specifically related to India and what we've done is we, di we did a research paper at the Institute and we saw, we did, a 25, we did a case study on 25 companies and we saw most of private equity is entering at the growth stage of, you know, the S curve, when it is going, they'll enter, they'll stay with the company, you know, for three to five years and then take it to, to the public, uh, you know, get it listed and, and, and exit. And we saw that, yes, well, private equity, when it combines with a company, it gets a lot of synergy in terms of the legal help, in terms of, you know, the capital, in terms of the institutionalization. But what we saw with the local entrepreneurs is that there was a turf between family-owned businesses because most of the businesses are family-owned. You know, for 20 years you're running something with certain principles and then somebody comes over you and tells you, now you have to do it this way. So that was the first turf. Yeah. Second thing what we saw was, okay, four or five years you take it to, you make it listed. Who makes the money is, fine, private equity firm makes a lot of money. They, they, they create a lot of wealth. And we also saw they create a lot of employment. You know, because of, of the various ways, mm -hmm. uh, we created a whole HR model. But when, you know, they left, after that, the company Im immediately faced a lot of troubles. So, so the time, you know, the growth stage, they, what, you know, it's like a catalyst. Yes. You enter into the, into, into the growth stage, take it to a, a market, get listed, it makes a lot of money, premium, and then they have a lot of funds, thousands of crores in their bank account, but they really don't know what to do. I gotcha. And, and the I, company got an exit. Let's give, let's give that question to Diana and Arif. 
Are, is this just an industry that loves them and leaves them and doesn't have a lasting impact on these companies? <laughs> just to shorten the question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's been quite a lot of research done on this and actually developed markets because yes. it's a big, obviously a big, big question. Actually, those of you who are on the course probably know are more up to date with that research than, uh, than I am. Uh, when it comes to India, for example, it is a different form of private equity, actually, to you know, to what I certainly was used to, where you're, you know, you're backing a promoter, you're backing a management team, you're normally in minority. It's just very, very different. You know, in, in the U.S. and Europe, you're typically uh, providing capital to buy the company, so you're buying out the previous owner. This is a very non-emotional transaction typically, you know, what price we'll buy it and then we'll be in control and we'll decide what we do with the management team. Very, very different in India because you're typically, as I say, minority, you're negotiating with someone the value that you're going to invest with someone that you then want to achieve the projections that he's been using to negotiate against you much, much harder. And I don't think always that the Indian GPs have sort of been up to the challenge. Uh, some of the ones that we backed absolutely have been. But it's one of the things we definitely look at is, you know, can you choose the right ones? Can you form a dynamic relationship? And also, can you create long-term value? And at the moment, your model of invest for three, four years and then IPO is dead because there are no IPOs at the moment. So now, People have gone in, GPs have gone in with that expectation after four years of stock. And can you imagine the, the, it's like, you know, the tension between the source of capital who wants an exit and the management team who can't give it to them? Very challenging. Okay. I don't think love you and leave you applies because I can give you my example. I'm on the board of two public companies uh, which we exited from six years ago. And, and you're still on the board? And the board second term. And Wait, as an LP, do you want him spending time on boards no, but, of companies but, you're not but investing? Hear this, hear this. Value creation, value creation in a private equity firm is not just about how you buy, but how you sell. Yes. And right. selling is almost more important than buying because you've got to leave enough value for I the agree. next guy. And the reason I'm on the board is because the board wants us to be there. Okay? And I'm not alone. I have a whole bunch of colleagues that sit there as well. What nobody's talked about right now is the network effect of private equity. We talk about money, we talk about value creation, but the network effect of private equity is humongous. And in terms of how we can bring different facets to bear on the value in that company. I have a colleague sitting here in the audience who came to the investment committee at Abraj three years ago and said, I want to buy an insurance company in Morocco. And we said, why on earth would you want to buy an insurance company in Morocco? And he said, because the growth in Africa in insurance is going to be X, Y, and Z, and this company will dominate Francophone Africa in insurance. And you know, we listen to Matteo and we're sitting on value creation at the rate of 45, 50% a year. It's incredible. The question is for Mr. Arif Navki. Um, when you started uh, Average Group from scratch, what was your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? Ouch. The biggest challenge was I had to first learn what the word private equity meant. Uh, and that's, by the way, it's a serious fact because it just happened that I stumbled into private equity. I think the biggest challenge is convincing people in 
nascent markets and underdeveloped markets, that the model that you're extrapolating and the model you're developing is one that has real value in that domestic economy. So in the early years, it was all around, believe me and trust me, because we're going to take you somewhere which is very different from where you've gone before, and convincing enough people that what we were doing was the right thing. So for a Braj to succeed, it needed to create an ecosystem around itself in which the private equity industry succeeded as well. So, you know, in a rising tide, all boats have to rise, not just the, the bigger one. So for us, it was crucially important to create the landscape and the industry and work very hard to bring other players into that equation as well, which we did, and I think that's really been a cornerstone of, of how we got it right. A follow-up question. How did you, and if you would give the mic to someone else, so when, how, how did you convince the first investor to give you money? Um, well, it's, I, I don't think we should go into a lot of detail on that because it is a long story. <laughs> I don't want the long story, but I mean, that must have been one of the hardest things you ever did in your life. Yes, but I'll, I, I'll tell you the way we started is I, was, I started a firm before I got into PE, which was extremely successful. So because I believed in the model and so many people were asking me if they could invest with me, I couldn't take it in the context of a closed company. I created a PE fund and put the first money in myself. There, there, there's a theme here, by the way. Uh, uh, um, Sega and her colleagues created $3.3 billion worth of value in Celtel and their fund. They literally started out of their own pocket. It's been a hard road yes. to find the Diana, yes. um, uh, the CDCs of the world, and, and even harder to find the pure financial investors, which in the long run need, need to be in this market. Next question. Hi, my name is Eleanor from the New Statesman. Um, it sounds very interesting, the whole private equity model. How do um, groups like Avraj Group uh, engage with governments to actually help to transition um, the economy into the next phase so that it can be self-developing? Do you do anything in that sort of side of things? I, I think that's a great question because, you know, um, I'm a firm believer that every large company that transcends more than one border has to have a corporate foreign policy. Corporate foreign policy is not something that many people embrace easily. But a firm like ours is one which believes, and I mentioned to you right up front, that we, from the first day we started, we put 5% of our money to work in communities. So the reason we did that is because we want to be a part of the community and be able to contribute back into it. So there were periods in time where, for example, in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Jordan, in Lebanon, we were the largest foreign investor into that country or that economy in a given year. And so governments started talking to us, and our ideas were always around how to help them improve their current model and functioning. So once people develop the trust that what you're doing is entirely for the benefit of the local economy, they start thinking of you as locally. So although we operate in 36 countries, I can tell you very safely that in at least half of them, the country in question thinks of us as a local investor, that we, are, we belong to that country. Sega, you, yeah. I, I know you've got, I mean, you are considerably write smaller checks, but still need to have a relationship with governance. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you look at it, in, um, in order for more capital to flow into Africa, and especially with private equity, which is, you know, not months, but it's, you know, it's a 10-year fund, the commitments you're making are on the shortest end four or five years, and in most cases they do take longer to develop, it's very, very important that the government plays the role that it should in creating an environment that works. Um, and in many cases, especially in the African countries, it's, you know, private equity 
and what it does is not completely understood. It's something that they question a lot. In my own home country, there was quite a lot of discussion. Um, there were a lot of discussions with CDC and the like where they were asking, what is this thing called private equity? Should we allow it? Is it going to be harmful? What damage is it going to do? You know, so those kinds of things, just the um, process of engaging with them in dialogue to make sure they understand what it is, how it works, and why they should welcome it is something that's very important. And then the, the rest is kind of standard around the need of creating, let's say, the rules and codes of investment and codes of engagement, and also making sure that they understand it's important not to change them halfway through the game. So that's a very important part of what government has to do to attract capital for us to be comfortable to go in, but then also for the governments to achieve the goals that they have for their own economic development. I am, I am getting signals from Ulf that the, the time is up. And when time is up, it's about the only time that I will take a signal from Ulf. Um, I just as a, I, I want to do two things. First, just as, as a bit of a summary here, I hope some of what you've heard is a little bit of under the covers. I mean, private equity is not, is not s simply uh, let's throw the money in and hope. Private equity, as uh, Sega said, is, comes, with, comes with help, it comes with governance, um, and creates an anchor in the economy, which presumably uh, knocks on. As Diana said, it, it has, there's a commercial imperative behind this. Um, but, as Arif has said from the early part of the evening, the, the effects of actually going into a country where you're not, where it's not contract like debt, but rather it's equity, where you suddenly have to build a whole ecosystem around the investment, um, creates a lot of difference in, in, in those environments. Obviously, this panel is full of people who are pro-private equity. Um, um, but I think there are really deeper arguments here that I hope someday that Ulf and his colleagues are going to verify for us with the full statistics. I want to thank the LSE and Ulf for putting this together. It's an important topic. I especially want to thank, we have people who've come from Dubai and Pakistan, from South Africa to be here today in the West End <laughs> to be here to be here today. It is uh, it it really it's an important topic. Um, it, we can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your your vision and your wisdom. And thank you all f for coming. And good night. You're encouraged to steal the pen because it's the only fee you're going to get tonight. Thank you for putting up with me. You're a good friend. You are. Thank you. You, you really are wonderful. I love, I love that you actually have this. Um, I love that you have a bigger feeling for this. I know that you know how to make money because Peter Smith told me you know how to make money. But also, I mean, we need more people in your position. It was his analogy, the mission of hospital is such a Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, the only thing I, I would... I bet he's told you that one too. He, he has, in fact. Yeah.
But the only thing I would fault you for is comparing her to Tom Cruise. But, but I mean, he's going like to get, he's gonna get so much mileage out of it. Thank you for coming. I know that you've been all the way in earlier, so I should really do. So, and I'm glad that you've actually finally met that. Yeah, I know. Because I know I'll take some I'll see you in Cape Town. Going to dinner? Are you are you rushing up? I'm running. Are you going to dinner as well? Yeah, I'm These are your to, notes. Uh, you know, had I had I seen I this, I I'm not you. sure I would have come. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you are great. to transform to be able to